0: Before the episode, I want to tell you really quickly that we are running an audience survey to learn more about our audience and look for feedback on improving the show. The last one we did was September 2021. And the show has just about doubled since then. So it's a good chance for us to get more feedback and learn how our audience has changed since then. It's really quick. It's a Google form. It only takes two minutes. There's a link in the description for this episode. And I really hope you can fill it out because it's really, really helpful for us to get feedback on the podcast and how to improve. And it's Kind of interesting. There's not really a great natural way for you as a podcast listener to give us feedback with an email newsletter. You can hit reply or find the author and reach out that way, which you can do on the podcast. But there's not any real personal information that you're telling iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcast platform you're listening on about you. No one is asking you for your LinkedIn or your job role or what have you. And so surveys are the best way we have to learn more about our audience as a podcast. So real quickly, it's only two minutes. It's a Google form. Should be in the description. I really appreciate you sharing your feedback and helping us improve the show. Thank you, and now onto the episode. My final guest in the CEO series with early career CEOs is Daniel Reese. Daniel acquired IntelliTriage in November 2019 after a military career and searching with a distinct thesis. IntelliTriage handles after-hours calls for providers, senior living businesses, and others of the remote nursing team. Daniel and I talk about growing a business that felt very much like a startup early on, advice for new CEOs, scaling teams, and finding a balance in his life as CEO. We also talk about working on submarines, which can be an entire podcast in its own right. Anyhow, please enjoy my episode with Daniel Reese. One of the most impactful things our CEO guests have talked about doing for their companies is upgrading their finance team. Ravix Group, led by CEO and former podcast guest, Timmy Oka, is the expert you need to build a scalable finance function. They handle everything from factional CFO work, HR consulting, and outsourced accounting. Ravix can even help your company prepare for an IPO, if that's an ambition of yours. To get in touch with Timmy and Ravix, go to ravixgroup.com and tell them, think like an owner sent you. And now for some advice and observations for finance and small companies, here's Timmy himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. How do you help your clients navigate high interest rates as we have right now?
1: That's a great question. A lot of our clients uh, have debt, and as you know, the interest rates have increased quite a bit. And so interest payments have gone up and cash management is more important than ever. So there are a couple of things that we we do to make sure our clients are in a good position to navigate these high interest rates environments. And the first thing is to make sure their cash management is taken care of properly. So what does that mean in particular? You know, one of the things that we look at is the interest rates that our clients are getting on the cash that they're holding in financial institutions like their banks because we have relationships with 20, 30 plus banks across our 200 clients we have a very keen sense of where the best rates are offered, and we're able to get those relationship pricings for our clients, right? So making sure that the client's cash is managed appropriately. And then also for some of our clients who have more cash on hand, maybe they were lucky to to raise money prior to the interest rate spiking, and they want to be good stewards of that cash while they're looking for opportunities to invest it. We also help them find treasury solutions you know, what are some more sophisticated options for them to invest that cash in a safe way and get a good return on it while they're looking for better ways to deploy it.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Timmy. To learn more about Ravix Group, head to their website at ravixgroup.com and tell them Think Like an Owner sent you. I also want to thank our other show sponsors, Hood & Strong, Oberlevis Strategies, and Oakbourne Advisors for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Hey, Daniel. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming on the podcast before the recording, we were talking about your career in the Navy on submarines. I would love to hear a little bit about the career you've had up until acquiring IntelliTriage.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So right when I graduated from Naval Academy, there's not a whole lot of career options you can choose from. It's, you know, you're going either the Navy or Marine Corps. I was fortunate in that I was actually dual enrolled in grad school during my senior year of the Naval Academy. So the first six months post-graduation from the Naval Academy, I was getting a graduate degree in government and politics, and then immediately went from there to nuclear power school in Charleston, South Carolina. You know, I was a, designated as a submarine officer coming out of the academy. And, you know, basically what that means is, you know, you're going to go be stationed with a submarine for four or five years and either do the nuclear deterrence mission or the kind of intel gathering mission that, that our two classes of submarines do, and or two types of submarines, I should say. And, you Whenever I got to Charleston, there was a little bit of a delay in the pipeline. So we have live nuclear reactors in upstate New York and Charleston, Charleston, South Carolina. And if one of those have to go down for maintenance, then you have to, the whole pipeline kind of backs up. And so it took about two years to get through the nuclear power school, which was part of its educational. So about a year of its educational and then about a year of its hands-on uh, practical knowledge on one of those prototypes uh, reactors. And so I did that for a couple of years and then was assigned to my first submarine in Groton, Connecticut. The USS San Juan. And I actually met them on deployment. We were doing a Middle East deployment at the time. So I flew out to Dubai and met them there. And then actually within, you know, the first 60, 90 days or something like that, we had a medical emergency and we had to go back into port in Dubai and someone had to have an appendectomy. So it was an eventful first little bit on the submarine. And then after I finished up that submarine assignment, I was actually moved over to stationed as a shore shore gig at the security office in Groton before and that's when I kind of started thinking about what I wanted to do post-Navy. Because right when you get to your shore time, that's when you start thinking about, you know, post-Navy life. And I always thought I wanted to kind of be a part of my family business, but decided that I should go to business school to kind of get a little bit of practical experience and went to business school and... During that time in between business school and the Navy, I worked for my family business and realized I did not want to work for my family business. And so I really had to kind of reset when I got to business school, which is when I heard about search funds and buying and acquiring small businesses. And I just kind of fell in love with the idea of that and decided I wanted to do a search after graduation. I took a little minor detour working for a company called Garnet Station Partners, or a private equity firm out of New York that specializes in in doing consumer-facing franchise roll-ups. I worked for them for about a year before launching my search.
0: And you searched with a really distinct thesis. Can you walk through what your thesis was and how you found IntelliTriage?
2: Yeah, so I, I, for me, the search was very much, you know, how do you kind of optimize the chance that you'll be able to acquire a business. And I used a lot of my family business background to kind of inform how I thought about going out and actually searching. So, you know, everything in in my mind was like, my dad uh, was the CEO of the family business. And in a lot of ways, my family business is a search fund type business. So it was would my approach appeal to someone like my dad who is the owner looking to sell and so for me i decided i needed to get really really deep on specific industries specific segments of the market and really understand and build some credibility in order to acquire a business in that space and so i kind of had two major verticals i went down i would call it you know telehealth adjacent or you know the unsexy parts of telehealth so not direct to consumer app-based telehealth but things that would benefit from getting care not in a traditional setting, and then, which was very broad, so there's a lot of segments to get into, and then the other segment was multi-site, in-person medical practices, and and looking at some of the more unsexy types of that, so like podiatry and gastroenterology, all, all those kinds of things that no one really wants to get into if you're not in the medical practice. And so I, I really built spent a lot of time building up my knowledge in each of the areas before approaching business owners, which I think ended up helping me stand out to Susie, who is who I ended up buying IntelliTriage from. I think whenever her and I first met, we just had a a level of depth to our conversation that she said she hadn't experienced with other people who she met that were interested in investing or purchasing the business, which helped me build a little bit of credibility there. So it, it worked out at least with Susie.
0: What were the first six months of the business like and what was the state of IntelliTriage when you arrived?
2: Yeah, I I bought a business that was not a very traditional search fund type business. You know, it was it was a very small business at the time that we acquired it. It was growing quickly, but you know, there were some things that were there's some hair on the business, given its size. Of the three owners, none of them worked full time in the business. Susie was the closest to working full time in the business, but she had a full time other job. And so the business was really, you know, Kathy, who was the chief nursing officer and a bunch of nurses. And Kathy was doing all the administrative stuff with the exception of maybe invoicing. I think Susie was taking care of invoicing. And so, you know, really the investment thesis for IntelliTriage was, number one, figure out very quickly if this business has the market fit and market potential that we think it has by, you know, getting really close to the customers, our major customers, understanding the value pop at a deeper level than we did during diligence. And then two you know, shoring up our operational processes. So again, we didn't have a scheduling process that was documented or repeatable. It was just Kathy or Susie, depending on the week, making the schedule in uh, Excel and then putting it in a program called NurseGred and And that was what, you know, was happening. And it wasn't on any routine. So, yeah, you know, I remember we bought the business 11-15-2019. And on 11-30, we didn't have a December schedule posted. And so like all the nurses were like, Hey, where's our schedule for December? Luckily we had a group of nurses at that time. And it goes like 30, 32, 35 nurses who were really dedicated to the business. And they they had a relatively routine schedule. So they kind of knew where they were going to work and they were pretty flexible and they helped us out. But that was one thing that was just immediately like, okay, we can't scale this type of process. We have to have deadlines and structure to put in place. So that's, that's really where I spent the first six months of the business really getting to know the the basic core processes and documenting and making sure that we were executing on those day-to-day. Can
0: you describe the management team and structure upon acquisition and then perhaps how it shifted and how you adjusted it over the first six months?
2: So again, I you know the business was small enough at that point where uh, Susie came on full-time and we had the, one of the other owners, David, who came on full-time. So Susie came in as kind of the Jack of all trades. David came on leading the sales function, and then we had Kathy. So it was really myself, Kathy, Susie, and David in the the very first stages of after acquisition, and that was three more full time people than I'd ever had before. And so, uh, in a leadership position, and so we we were able to say, Hey, here's who's responsible for what, just to keep the day to day going. And we don't need to hire anyone right away because us three are coming on board. And let's, you know, us three really start mapping out these processes and and seeing what the organization could look like once we start scaling. Where do we want to hire someone first? Is it a training manager? Is it a director of quality assurance? Is it more nursing leaders? And allowed us in the first, I'll call it six to nine months to really fill that out by doing it ourselves. And then... Once we had a little bit better feel for where the where we needed the support, we started focusing on building the team in those areas.
0: It sounds like there were steps you took or specific roles that you would hire in a, in a certain order. How did you prioritize management hires and the order in which you made them?
2: Susie would probably argue we didn't do it based on where we needed the most help. <laughs> so as an example, Susie did scheduling for a long time. And those are something she oversaw until we got... More people on the operations team. But to me, it was like, where is this going to drive the most impact for the business going forward? And so uh, one of the decisions that I made early on was training has to be addressed. Like when we bring on a new nurse, a core piece of what we do is bring on nurses and teach them to be telephone nurses instead of in the home nurses. And so that training process was one that was like, okay, we have to we have to shore this up immediately and we need someone to lead this, oversee it and really drive it forward. And so that, you know, that was kind of the thought process is not necessarily where we needed the most help, but it was what was going to have the most lasting impact, even if that meant that that person wasn't working as long hours as me, Susie, Kathy and David were. So so that that's how we prioritized. And then over time, we started saying, OK, now what are the what can we roll under different other people in the organization to start scaling the uh, the org chart?
0: In reviewing your first two years in the business, year one and year two, what do you feel like went well and what do you feel like you could have improved on?
2: Great question. I I think the what went well, and maybe this is not necessarily what went well, but I what 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 I think was very eye-opening was how needed our service was in the market. Like even more than we thought at time of acquisition of the after hours, telephone triage for hospice and home health is a very needed service because it reduces the burden on the nurses in the field. And those nurses in the field are getting really burnt out really quickly. And there's a nursing shortage It's even worse in the post-acute care space. And so there's a true need for the service. we were adding more value than I even thought when we acquired the business. And so that was the best thing we could find out, right? It was the actual core service was really needed and adding a bunch of value. I would say what didn't go as well was our sales process. I think that was, I, I really thought we had a, a firm sales process going into it. And then yeah. once I got into it, it really was, I'm not going to say completely winged, but it was, it, we didn't have, you know, a sales presentation that we used. We kind of made them up as we went along. And, you know, the first few sales calls I was on, like it, it, there was literally no presentation, it was just us talking. And uh, so we had to, we had to really, shore that up much quicker than I was hoping we would have to shore that up just because we knew that growth was one of the keys, if not the key piece in the investment thesis is we needed to be growing quickly, which mean, which meant we needed to be closing customers quickly and then bigger and better customers. So that took a lot of time of my time early on that I didn't think it would is, is really focusing on the sales process and the team there. So building on a sales force is obviously
0: important for growing revenue, but what else had to happen to enable revenue growth?
2: I mean, I think it just goes back to the, the making sure we're delivering on the day-to-day operations. Like that was the key piece of you know that was phase one of year one was ensuring we could deliver the service with high quality and it was repeatable. And so all the processes that went into that was was step one. You know, I, just very basic stuff. I mentioned scheduling already, reviewing people's work, quality audits. You know, doing quality assurance audits. That's something that just didn't happen. Focusing on availability times for nurses whenever they were taking calls, like how long are our patients waiting on the phone? There was no reporting function. So we had no idea what our average wait time was or, you know, how we did the night before. So it was really just making sure we understood kind of the key operating processes, had those in place, and then had a way to make sure we were measuring that they were going well on a day-to-day. And, and early on, it was, you know, week-to-week, month-to-month basis versus day-to-day. And making sure those were going well so we could address our customers' needs. That, once we had you know, some of those, started getting some of those basics in place, it made me much more comfortable with, hey, going and selling the service, that we're, we are high quality, we are delivering value. And so I think that needed to happen a bit before we could really put the gas on the sales process.
0: So it sounds like you're starting to grow pretty well in year three. What decisions and changes did you make in those that first two years year one and year two that set the foundation for the growth you're having now
1: yeah
2: i would say getting closer to the customers our current customers that was the one of the big things that i think was just missing every relationship was managed by kathy she knew every customer that was the only person the customers talked to and so just introducing different people to manage both strategic accounts and then segment the customers out so everyone was responsible for X number of customers was a big part of what we did pretty early. I'd say within the first three months, we had Susie, myself, Kathy, and David all had, hey, here are the four accounts that you're responsible for managing on a day-to-day basis, and here are the other six accounts that you need to make sure, you know, they're not always going to Kathy for you, are their account manager, even if you're not doing their their reviews. We also implemented the monthly reviews, so we weren't basically meeting with our customers at all. We were just, if they had an issue, that's when we talked to them. And so it just set the tone of like, oh, we're always talking to you when you're doing poorly. And in reality, you know, we were doing poorly like 0.1% of the calls we were answering, but we weren't communicating any of that to the customer. So you know, we had to implement regular reviews with the customers. Now we call them client engagement meetings that we do monthly or quarterly, depending on the client. And so we implemented those in the first four, four or five months. And that was a big part of what we did.
0: Yeah, having that regular touch point with customers sounds really valuable. Do you feel like that cadence has improved your customer churn to some degree?
2: Anecdotally, yes. But we haven't gotten real scientific about it. Some customers never show up to their monthly meetings. Like right? We have it on the books every month. They never show up. And those customers have been here for seven years and they have, they're happy. They don't, you know, they're just like, Hey, keep doing what you're doing. We don't need to talk. So there's like some other anecdotes of just like, no, out of sight, out of mind. But what I would say is our churn rate reduced pretty dramatically from 2018, 2019, and then called the first six months of 2020. If you compare those periods to the second six months of 2020, 2021 and 2022 were meaningfully lower. We went from, you know, call it 13 to 20% churn to less than 5% churn. And so like yes, we're doing better at delivering the service, but we're I think we're doing much better at communicating the value that we're adding and I think that's been a big factor of that. I, I wish I could say that was just like my thinking that we needed to do that, but we lost a big customer month one and a half And so it kind of was like, oh, wait a minute, we need to address this immediately.
0: What else do you think has led to that churn decline over time?
2: Yeah, I would say two big things that our customers really care about is one, quality. So we have to make sure we're delivering really quality triage. So we tightened up our hiring practices, we tightened up our training processes, and we monitor quality very closely. And so I think that has been a big factor. Nurses that maybe were would have been allowed to stay here six months or nine months or maybe even a year, who are just really low quality nurses. Sometimes aren't even making out of training, and if they do make it out of training, they're not making more than a couple of weeks because they just don't meet the quality standards that we have for being on the team. So that's one of the big ones. I would say the second piece is really just the communication of the value to the customer. Right? It's easy when your only touch point is. Hey, Jane Smith did this wrong for my patient, and that's the only interaction you have. The perception from the client is IntelliTriage is always doing poorly, and so we've we've shifted that to say, hey, we know we make mistakes. We're never going to be perfect. However, 99.8% of calls we do great on, and it's just these 0.2. And you know, we've even gone as far as like, hey, what is an acceptable error rate? Like what would you allow your nurses? How often would you allow them to make uh, an error? And, you know, most of us like, well, you know, I expect them to be 90, 95% accurate. Like we're meaningfully better than that. And so like, let us send you calls. We record every call. let us send you calls that are just normal calls. Like we, you know, we won't pick random calls and send them to you and you can listen to them. And that helps just highlight, Hey, yes, we're always going to have areas of opportunity. We always need to be working and, and trying to get better, but For the vast, vast majority of the time, we're really serving your patients and your nurses really well. And so I think that communication helped change the paradigm of the relationship for many of our clients.
0: Do you have any feedback mechanisms? So after a call with a nurse, the customer or the person on the other line can give some sort of feedback, like a thumbs down, thumbs up on how the call went so you can start tracking that over time?
2: So no. So we don't have anything like that. A couple of like real-world challenges with our team and and the rating system. Number one, you would love for our nurses are talking to our customers' patients. And so our nurses are, you know, the most common example is we have hospice nurses doing telephone triage. We're serving a hospice providers that, you know, an agency, and then they have customers that call in our nurses' answer, So our nurses are generally talking to the caregiver or, or maybe the patient whenever they're calling in after hours for some issue. Well, with hospice in particular, about 15% of the calls are death calls. So, hey, my loved one passed away. And customers are our customers are very sensitive to having patients or caregivers rate phone interactions because their loved one could have just passed away. So, from that, that's, that's kind of a real-world limitation for us. Where we, and most of the time, our nurses don't realize that it's not a it's not the call that's bad, right? It's not the customer service. We very rarely get like a customer service or a clinical type of incident. It's some kind of procedural or documentation issue. And so the nurse doesn't realize that they've made the procedural issue or procedural mistake or documentation mistake. And so, you know, they have no they have no way of rating that. So what we are doing today is there's a couple of different AI softwares that monitor VoIP systems now, the voice over internet protocol that we are starting to layer into our phone system that listens to every call and starts tracking things like sentiment of the call and will flag certain words for us to, for our QA team to monitor. So we did it, we did a test of that and it was actually really, really cool. I didn't, I didn't have high hopes because I was like, oh, the sentiment's always going to be negative when you have a patient dying, but it was actually really cool. So we're, we're, we're looking at that, implementing that across our entire organization right now.
0: So it sounds like in that first year, you're very focused on short-term things, you know, losing a customer and building process. How do you feel like your ability to focus on longer-term projects and initiatives in the business has changed now that you're in year three?
2: Yeah, it's it's actually really interesting. It's kind of done a little bit of a slinky, like uh, initial stages was like hourly or daily, like it was very much what do we have to do right this second? And so the the very early stages were really, you know, really short time periods. That was my focus of like, Hey, what do we need to get done today? What do we need to get done by the end of the week? That kind of thing. Over the first couple of years, I would say that started shifting out to, you know, we hired a VP of ops who's been great and easy. He's been helping me drive a lot of the operational changes. We now have a bunch of directors under on the operations team, making sure that we're, you know, kind of keeping their department up to speed and, and making sure their teams are doing what they're supposed to do. So it's allowed me to of take a step back and think a quarter or two ahead. We're still growing really quickly, so it's really hard to think more than a year ahead. Uh, you know, we did we do an annual planning session every year, and what we what planned for 2021 when we did the 2022 review, we we're like this was done in April of 21, like you know, of 22. Like we four months into the year, we had accomplished our yearly things that we needed to achieve, and so it's really hard to think you know really far out. But I try to stay a year ahead, big picture, and then a couple of quarters ahead from like a uh, priorities perspective. But now I think we're even taking a little bit of a shift of saying, yes, we have these, you know, quarterly and annual priorities that we're focused on, but how do we execute on those daily? So it's almost like we're trying to shrink the time scale, not for me or my VP of op, which his name is Rob, not for me or Rob, but for our teams so that when they have their daily huddles, They're focused on very specific metrics that they should be reviewing. And so it's like kind of taking a step back and saying, how do we execute better daily to meet our quarterly and and annual goals?
0: How do you go about setting goals and how do you think through the breaking down of goals into monthly or quarterly or annual semi-smaller goals?
2: Yeah. So we used a couple of different frameworks. So we've had two annual strategy plans in 2021, 2022. 2021, we, the whole leadership team read Scaling Up book, the entrepreneurial operating system. And then in, or sorry, Traction, that's what it was, 2021, the EOS system. And then 22, we read Scaling Up, which is the Rockefeller Habits book. I'm not a big fan of like subscribing to Really strictly, either one of those frameworks, but we've pulled things from those frameworks to help build our annual quarterly, monthly, weekly, daily cadence. And I think it's one of the things that we're obviously, as a leadership team, are still working on. You know, we're a relatively new leadership team. We're all working together. So it's still something we still work on, but we make time to make sure we do the annual offsite to plan quarterly reviews to make sure we're on track for our goals and set the next quarter's goals. And then we do every, you know, in December and in December and June, we do our kind of two different, like larger touch points where we get together and just say, where are we at? Where do we want to be? Where do we want to go in the next six months or a year?
0: Yeah. Speaking of goal setting, it feels like the business has shifted quite a bit over the years since you acquired it. How do you feel like the business has changed? Do you feel like you're running the, the same business that you acquired or has it changed dramatically since then?
2: Uh, Yeah, it feels like we've changed like three times since we've purchased it. (laughs) Honestly. (laughs) Yeah, going back to I felt like we I felt like we bought a startup. We didn't really buy a a small, small business. We bought a startup. And so we've been changing. I I would say there's been noticeable like phases of the business. And I would say we're kind of on our fourth iteration of what the evolution of the business looks like. And, you know, I think every time you essentially double in size, you have to kind of reevaluate the business. and so. We just doubled this past year. And so it's, we're kind of at a new phase of the business where you say, all right, are these the right people for this size business? Are these, you know, are we doing the right things? Do we have the right structure for this type of business? It very much has changed since we had initially acquired. I, th- I think the biggest change though was having a leader for each department or each function of the organization. For the longest time, we didn't have those seats filled. And so at least one or two people were doing multiple people's jobs. And so that, I think that's been the biggest change in the past i'll call it 18 months of like having everyone in the right seat or having someone in the seat even if they weren't the the long-term fit having someone in that seat for driving that forward
0: you've talked a lot about building a scalable team and infrastructure what else has to happen for the company to scale in the way you want it to
2: yeah i think now it's, it's all about reducing span of control and, and kind of building out what i'll call our middle management i think it's You know, I tell, we do quarterly-wide company updates, and every quarterly update, I say, hey, this role is called the team lead role and the supervisor role. These two roles are going to be the most important roles for our business going forward. So now that we have kind of all the department heads in place, it's about reducing the span of control for the 200 or so nurses that we have Mm -hmm. so that they're not, you know, 30 or 40 of them aren't reporting to one person. It's a 10 or 15 reporting to a team lead, that team lead reporting up to someone else, and that person reporting up to the DP of ops and trying to build a scalable organization. It's really, really hard to get 200 different nurses to implement change across the organization. I want to process changes and our processes change not infrequently because we're still evolving. And so that change management has been a big challenge. And I think that's where we see the next piece of the business of being able to really scale is going to be able to manage those teams on a much smaller level or more, more direct, intimate level. That way we can impact that change more quickly and more efficiently.
0: How do you feel like your life as CEO, both on the professional side and the personal side, how do you feel like it's changed?
2: Yeah, so I'll start on the personal side. I think that one's a little easier. I really thought that I was going to be working kind of nonstop. And like I, I do work a lot. Like, I don't want to downplay that for people who are thinking about doing search and running a business like you do work quite a bit but just not what i expected i think it's not what i saw my dad doing you know my dad running a small business go to work at six be home at you know six six Would have dinner, you know, basically as he was answering other emails and, and you know, doing things. So, yeah, going out to dinner with customers. So, he just worked nonstop. And and I think that was kind of my impression. And that's not at all what it's been. You know, I I think uh, I've been able to achieve much better balance than I thought I would. And I think it's all just, you know, for me, it's all about just prioritizing when I'm working versus how much I'm working. So, uh, you know, I tend to get in the office pretty early but I leave it a decent time. That way I can be home and see my daughter and all that. So um, I think that's been something that's been a little different in a really good way on the work side, professional side. I think it's probably just the, the fact that like the buck stops with you, right? Like every, you know that, right? But you have to be really thoughtful about decisions you make and how and maybe even more important than the decisions you make, how you communicate those decisions, Something that you know, I think I've learned a few lessons over the past few years. Of like, we'll discuss some of the leadership team. Hey, this is an obvious decision. Do this, go, and then you get just a ton of pushback, whether it's from your nurses or your customers or you know whatever it is. And you're just like, whoa, I did not see that coming. That was seemed like such an obvious answer to this question, and you realize, well, it's not the answer. It's the way that you communicated. It was you know, it's kind of an afterthought the communication instead of helping build consensus or talking through the thought process. And so I think that that's been a piece that has been. Just really eye-opening is that pressure to make sure that you're being really thoughtful about decisions and then having really good change management and not just having it as an afterthought.
0: The communication piece is really interesting. We did an episode with Carl Streck, who's the CEO of Mountain Seed, and he was talking about how when he as the CEO talks, it off like his whisper often sounds like a yell to his team, in that it's the you know, the the statement, the law of the land for the company. How do you think about phrasing with your own team such that you can ask questions and be more open to feedback and give your team permission to kind of push back here and there as they see fit or if they see something different than you do?
2: Yeah. So I think there's three facets of it that or three segments of like that where that communication takes place that require different approaches, at least from my point of view. So if it's customer communication. Number one, like the only time I will send something blanket out to customers is like, we have really thought about it. We've communicated really well. We've got a comms plan on how we're going to roll it out and what, you know, giving time for reactions to happen. And if there's key clients that could be upset about it, we test that with them first. And so with customers, it's just being really intentional whenever I'm the one saying something or whenever I'm the one sending something out. Otherwise, I've tried to remove myself from the customer communication So if a customer's having an issue and they're saying, hey, I'm worried about quality or I'm worried about the timeliness of the phone being answered, that's okay. Account manager, you need to go where previously I would just hop on the call. No, account manager, you need to go have the discussion with the customer and allow room for escalation. So that way we can be more thoughtful about a response. Because if I say a response on the call or if I don't have a response on the call, both of those could be perceived negatively. So let's be thoughtful about that, and let's leave room for. What I always tell my team is, leave room for escalation. There's power in leaving room for escalation. So on the customer side, that's how we that we handle it as an organization. Then there's the internal side of not my direct reports. So kind of the the middle management and actual triage nurses. We handle that similarly. Of you know, whenever I send something out, or whenever we have those quarterly wide updates, you know, I have to be pretty thoughtful about. Why we came to this decision, or ideally, what we try to do is say, "Hey, we're thinking about this. We would love your feedback before we roll out any changes." So, trying to get them to provide feedback for two reasons: one, build some consensus, but also help us with any blind spots we may have as a, as a leadership team. Like maybe we didn't think about it this way. And I think you know having that in place has helped us be a bit more successful about communication to middle management and, and triage nurses. And then the third bucket is like my direct reports, and I think. What I, to, to your point you just made, what what is tough time is oftentimes I say something just wanting to understand people's opinions on it, not as like, this is what we need to do, but it's like, okay, well, what if we did this? And when I say, what if we did this? I hear that as pushback or give me some feedback or something like that. And what other people sometimes hear is we're doing this. And so for my direct reports, it's, I, I think I've had to be intentional about, trying to be a bit more vulnerable about them. Like my VP of ops, I don't know, a year ago was like, you never make mistakes. So it's really hard to like present ideas to you. And it's like, I make mistakes literally, probably more than you'd all the time. Like that's my fault for not showing you that I'm making these mistakes on a daily basis. And so trying to be a bit more vulnerable about like, we're going to make mistakes. We're, we're, we're doing a lot. We're moving quickly. We're changing a lot. We're all going to make mistakes. That's not something that we need to be afraid of. That means... We need to work together as a team to be able to, to implement those and, and minimize the mistakes that we make and try to build like the culture of my direct reports of a bit more collaborative versus telling you to do this, go do it.
0: Yeah, that's probably not something you can just switch on. Like there's it probably takes a while to build that kind of trust with your team. Like on average, how long do you think it took before members of your team were comfortable enough with you giving open and honest feedback and could trust that would respond in a consistent and predictable and open way?
2: I really think it's dependent on the person. Some people come in and are, are like, hey, I, we should think about this. And then others are, uh, especially ones that have come from larger organizations, I think they're just used to, if you you have a boss and your boss says something, that's just in that's the, the conversation. So I think those people tend to take a little bit more time to draw out of that mindset of, of like, hey, we're, we're not we're small business, we're all learning here please provide feedback. So it is very dependent on the person. What was great early on was Kathy was not afraid to give feedback. She always gave feedback, which was great because she was kind of speaking, she was the voice of the nurses. But I think that helped when people would come on board to see you can disagree and be constructive and give feedback and you don't have to worry about being shut down or or being fired or something like that. So I think that helped early on. But now now we have a, a different management team that's in place that you know, we've had to try to build that with.
0: What advice do you offer to early career CEOs thinking about the first couple of years in their new business?
2: Yeah, a, a couple of things. I think number one is like everyone has advice and it's not worth anything. Like you take what works and disregard the rest, right? And no, no one's going to have a perfect answer. But I think there's there's two things that I... Have been surprised by that. I think if you're intentional about, can be addressed. One is being is pre CEO, right? It's when you're in the search process as being smart and intentional about who you let invest in your search, and more importantly, in your business. I think that relationship drives a lot of learning, whether it's quick quickwiring or or really a lot of pain, and that relationship can be either really beneficial or just not helpful at all, and end up spending a lot of energy doing something that's not super beneficial so be intentional about who you're letting invest don't just take money because it's available take money from the people who want to partner with you because at the end of the day if you have a good deal or if you're a searcher who is really intent on doing this and been thoughtful about it you're going to raise the money and so be intentional about who you allow to do that and then kind of taking that a little bit uh, one step further is be really intentional about your board makeup I think the biggest thing I have seen from some close friends of mine who I respect a ton is the relationship with their board is it's just a little it's not maybe not adversarial, but it's not open and transparent. One of the big things that I was just very aware of is like, I'm a first time running a business first time CEO, like I'm going to make a ton of mistakes. I need someone to help me who has seen who has some pattern recognition to, to help me at least prevent from making any big mistakes. But the only way they can prevent you from doing that and help to coach you along is if you're really open and transparent with them, which means being a little bit vulnerable and not worrying about your job. And so I think that comes with the relationship piece. I think the less guarded you can be about the relationship with the board, the better, the more likely you are for them to be really helpful instead of just something that you have to deal with.
0: What other aspects do you consider when putting together a board? You mentioned pattern recognition. Are you looking for people who've had certain roles before, like CEO, CFO, investor, whatnot? What what goes in in your mind to building a
2: board? If you can find someone with good industry experience, that's very helpful. I'm fortunate to have two people on my board that have really deep industry experience. So Kent Weaver runs a home health company. Our customers are home health people, customers, you know. So that's great. Chris Hendrickson managed or ran VRI, which was a remote patient monitoring. They had an outsource or an outside call center. was staffed by nurses. He's run very similar business to mine before. And those two people on the board have been very helpful from an industry experience perspective. So I think that's when you're thinking through tactical things, you know, as you go through those type, that type of feedback is really helpful. and, And that experience is helpful. The other piece is availability. So Jay Davis is also on my board. He's local in Nashville. And that's very helpful just to be able to like text jay or call jay or grab coffee with jay like when i first started we would have coffee together he'd introduce me to people in the area that worked in you know adjacent spaces and so just availability is very helpful it's sometimes it can be tough getting a hold of if you have a really busy board member and if you need something quick or need some feedback you know if you're looking for an answer quickly it's just tough so um, availability is helpful and then i do think a good mix of operator investor is important to make sure that you're, again you're being efficient with capital, but also that you're born as understanding of the real world things that you're that you're going through.
0: What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on?
2: Probably that I need to be able to do everything. I think I coming from the military and seeing my family business and my early stages at IntelliTriage were very much. Like I nothing is below me. I need to be able to do everything. I should be the expert in everything. How can I ask someone to do something if I haven't done it myself? And I think I felt very, very strongly about that early on. As we've grown and, and needed to scale, it's just very impractical for me to be able to do that. Like I do need to have a good understanding of all the aspects of the business so I can provide meaningful input but I don't necessarily need to be able to put the schedule together in two hours or I don't necessarily need to be able to to go in and fix some IT issue on a laptop. That's what you have the team for. And so I think that required a conscious shift in my in my mind. And I think it's also helped with the shift of, of our my direct reports, especially on the nursing side of just saying, it's okay that some things aren't worth your attention. Like that's why you have a team And your team needs to be able to do that. You have almost infinite amount of things that you could be doing on the business day to day. You have to focus on the most impactful and highest priority, not something just because someone's screaming the loudest. So I think that was something that I was pretty sure I would never change my opinion on that I I think I have.
0: Excellent. What's the best business you've ever seen?
2: I can't remember the name of it, but it's a dog poop business. So they, (laughs) it's, I looked. I just like got introduced, it's it's based out of Knoxville. I got introduced to like a family friend to the owners. It's essentially a recurring revenue service business. They contract with homeowners associations, apartment complexes, and what happens. So let's say you're you're renting an apartment in an apartment complex. If you have a dog, you have to register your dog. And when you do that, you also have to provide a fecal sample so that way they have a DNA match for the dog. And then if you leave the, so if you don't pick up your dog's poop, whenever you're walking your dog, someone can pick it up, take it to the office. The office will send it to this lab. They'll do the DNA testing. They'll match the dog. And then the apartment complex will do a fine for the owner of the dog for not picking it up. And it was like 99.4% retention. It was growing crazy quick. The margins were insane because they very rarely got actual samples. It was just, it was wild how sticky the business was. And they were just like printing money. Again, I can't remember the name of the business. I, re- I tried to buy it. I really tried to buy it. And he was just like, I'm not selling this business. So it was a hilarious business that I was like, what is this? Why would this be a thing? But it just happened to be, it may not be the best business by some standards, but it was just one of those hilarious business that was probably worth $80 million and just growing like crazy. And it was, it was really interesting.
0: That's fascinating. Do they have any statistics or data on compliance after implementation with an HOA? I can imagine after a few folks start getting caught with dog poop in the yard, that compliance improves from there. Is there any data on that?
2: So basically what they said, you know, I didn't get super deep on them because they wouldn't sell the business. But basically what the owner was saying to me was after the first month, we almost never get a sample. So you get like the first month where you get a lot. And then you do the testing and it pays for itself because then, you know, the apartment building would find the owner 200 bucks, right? And it's not that much per dog or per user or whatever they pay every month for the, so you get, you know, they find the person 200 bucks and they cover a bunch of costs. And then, you know, as soon as a couple of people get fined 200 bucks, no one leaves dog poop anywhere. So they're just this business that's just insanely sticky. It's a low cost to the customer, but it provides a ton of value for the overall apartment complex. So it's pretty fine.
0: That's fantastic. What a cool business. I have a dog myself and would love businesses like that to be around our apartment or others too. That's that's pretty wild. Thank you, Daniel, so much for coming on the podcast and rounding out our CEO series. Really appreciate it. It's been really fun to chat with you today.
2: Yeah, I appreciate it, Alex. It was, it was great, great talk to you.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live of Bank, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakborne Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.